everybody. It's Wayne with Mark and Areed, and we are so excited that you've come to watch the Eat Community Podcast. We know you're going to enjoy it. We actually did it live originally on our Eat Community webinar series, which we also invite you to come to, but you will love this podcast that you're going to be listening to right now. All right. Hey, everybody. We got Wayne here in foggy Colorado. I'm going to move my webcam. Look at It'll take a second to get, but look at behind the screen there. That's about how far I'm seeing. I bet visibility isn't 30 yards. Um, and we don't get fog very often, so that's a little unusual. It's preceding a snowstorm that we're going to get tonight, I guess. Um, it was 65 degrees yesterday. But guess what? There's no climate change happening. Wink, wink, nod, nod. Um, anyway, I am so excited to have with me here today Alexis Sigler, and he's going to be our guest, and I'm going to interview him for a little bit, and then he's going to give us a, a, a discussion about his farm and what he's doing. And then we've got Mark and Areeb. Mark and Areeb, say hi. Hello, guys. Hey, guys. That was Mark. That was Areeb. They're, they're shy. They don't put their webcams up. Actually, sometimes their webcams work. Sometimes they don't. And Areeb is in uh, is in Lahore, um, Pakistan, and and Mark is in um, Dhaka, Bangladesh, and uh, and Alexis is in Virginia. He's going to tell us more about that. So Alexis, why don't we get started? Why don't you just Give a little bit to our audience about yourself. You gave me just a little about the same way, sort of what's your history, where have you lived for most of your life, and kind of what have you been up to, and kind of bring us up till today. Take as long as you'd like and just answer that. Very good. Well, I was born on a small farm in Georgia, a largely self-sufficient farm, and I never went to college. I was self-educated. I got involved in a lot of environmental projects as an adult. I've lived in Central Virginia all of my adult life. I've lived in a few different intentional communities. Actually, Twin Oaks community was kind of my escape from Redneck, uh, Redneck Georgia. Uh, so I lived there for a while. Um, and having an uh, interest in uh, environmental restoration and environmental organizing, I've organized a number of successful campaigns. Um, I've done some writing, uh, published a book called Integrated Activism, which is available through North Atlantic Publishers. Um, and starting 10 or so years ago, I was getting to the point where I wasn't feeling satisfied with writing about uh, how people should live. Uh, and I thought, well, I have an unusual set of, of mechanical skills. I've built buildings. I've done a fair amount of work on commercial food processing, woodworking, different kinds of equipment, and also as well as renewable energy systems, solar, uh, composting, a lot of different kinds of systems. Um, uh, so we decided, uh, I got together, started organizing. A bunch of my friends, we got excited about Living Energy Farm, which is uh, as it's now called, and we started that seven years ago. Uh, the idea is to build a farm in a community that runs without fossil fuel, but also to build it very cheaply, as simply and cheaply as possible, so it can be taken around the world to as many people as possible. Um, and uh, the uh, residential side of it has worked really well. Uh, we've had minus five degrees Fahrenheit temperatures here recently, and our house stays entirely, uh, completely warm, uh, warm enough with uh, only solar energy. Uh, we have what we call a DC microgrid, a bunch of integrated DC systems. We'll talk about those. Um, and at the personal level, I have two kids uh, that live with there on the farm. We have a couple of families now uh, living as a community on the farm. And as far as I can tell, the numbers get a little tricky, but I think uh, when you look at our energy use, 
if you take the global supply of renewable energy that already exists and divide that out per capita, we're already below that level. Um, and we built, our, built out our project for about $13,000, $14,000 per capita, uh, which is not nothing, but it's, it's not a crazy amount of money. Um, so I think we're, uh, I think what we're doing is working. There are a couple of areas where we're trying to do things better. We haven't figured it out yet. We haven't, we're working on our farm fuel tractors. We're working on our cooking systems. But at the residential level, in terms of making the community work, uh, that side of it's working really well. So you were introduced to us by one of our amazing members, Aaron Hackett. I'm curious, because I didn't ask him, and he's been awesome. He's helped us um, get about three other people like yourself that were just great to talk to. How, did you, how do you know Aaron? How, how is he a friend of yours? Uh, well, he's come out to LEF uh, once a few times for tours and been involved. Uh, he's a great guy. I can't say we're the best of friends, but we see him occasionally. He's, he's, uh, he's done some good stuff for us. So. Uh, you know, we have a we try to advertise ourselves or make ourselves open publicly. So people come for tours. We have our website, of course, and a few newspaper articles and whatnot. Um, so he's been part of, of groups of people like you're seeing showing some of the pictures there. We have work days on Saturdays, So people come out. We had particularly in building the house. We had big work parties where people would come out and we're doing we do workshops most often uh, on weekends, as well as uh, these pictures you're seeing right there. That's our most recent off grid intensive, we call it immersive where we bring people out for the whole weekend they live off grid what i'm showing them there how to wire uh solar electricity uh so aaron's been part of that uh coming out and sort of experiencing what we're doing cool um you mentioned the number about your cost per capita uh, i'll ask a little more about this later you're going to describe it which by the way i already showed you something guys that you may or may not know it, Alexis is already doing something a lot of people are reluctant to do and why I really respect what he's doing. He gave you numbers. He, he's being very transparent about what his costs and such are. And that's unfortunately not done as frequently as, as probably it should be in this sort of environmental restorative community. But I just love that. But let me ask a question about it. Did that 13, did that include your land costs or is that separate? Uh, and do you own your land or do you lease? Well, we own the land, uh, but we bought, we're, we're hoping to build multiple houses. We've got 127 acres. I don't know what that is in hectares, but um, uh, it's a big piece of land. And the idea is that we would build one house and then um, build a larger community, more houses. But those numbers I gave you pertain to uh, our house, which is uh, eight uh, rooms uh, can accommodate how many people you put in eight rooms. But it also includes, you're seeing some of the barns and solar facilities. That's a solar powered firewood saw you're looking at in that picture. Uh, but in any case, the numbers I gave you does include all of our uh, water infrastructure to run irrigation out to the fields. We pass the irrigation through the house actually, which the free air conditioning uh, once you install the pipe. So the zero operational cost, but it includes all of our solar facilities. Uh, that's some of our cooking facilities there. Uh, so all of the infrastructure, but not the actual land itself. Um, because it is a big parcel of land. Uh, we ended up, we wanted a piece of land in a location where we could live without automobiles, so we could live with bicycles and trying to do that in a rural area is really tricky. Um, so we ended up really with a much bigger piece of land than we needed necessarily, but it was in the right location. Um, so those numbers include yeah. all of the, the uh, renewable energy infrastructure. That, that I was working on this morning, that's our attempt at building a small scale, uh, what they do industrially, which is high temperature storage, either with steam or what they call heat transfer fluids. Uh, this is the next generation of cooking equipment for us, hopefully. 
Uh, we'll see. I haven't got it quite w working all that well just yet. And um, it, anyway, you answered the question perfectly. That was great. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what I call lightning round. I'm going to ask you probably five or six questions, maybe a couple more, just to give our audience a little bit more insight about you. And Ari probably mentions these to you. And, and they're going to be about your life and your philosophy and different things you do. And then after we're done with that, we're going to open it up and let you give us a great description because, man, every one of these pictures, I have a whole bunch of questions and you'll be able to give us cool descriptions. Um, so you do whatever you choose. And then let me just say now to our audience, if you guys have questions anytime, go ahead and put them in the question box. I'm actually, my hands here is moving over. I'm using two screens, so I'm not ignoring you now. I'm going to pull the questions up. And if you guys have questions as we move along, ask them. And then I'll kind of read whether they make sense to have Alexis answer them right then or if we wait a little bit later, but we'll definitely get to all of them. And our agenda for today is this is scheduled for an hour. If we go longer than that, as long as Alexis is willing to stay here with us and you guys are, it's because you guys have questions, we'll probably do that. After this, Mark is, is going to show our highlights for the week, and that's about a half an hour long. And so, you know, you can. You can choose to watch those too. We'd love to have you do it. This is sort of our day when we really take, and it's awesome because Aaron's on here. I see him in the audience. Um, we take people like Aaron that give us give us great, you know, people that we can talk to. And we kind of make this just a great time to see what people that are out there, as we say, doing something to make the planet better. And that's clearly what Alexis is doing. So here's those questions, Alexis. And they're just real simple. You know, don't have to even think about it. If you have to think much, you're, you know, you're overthinking. Just, just take it quickly. So let's start with this one. Let's pretend you were 15 years old now, okay? So take yourself back to when you were that age. And it was either a Saturday or a Sunday, sometime when you didn't have to do anything else. Time was yours, okay? What would we find you doing? What would, what would Alexis be doing on, uh, he didn't have to do anything that his mom and dad were saying, he didn't have a job that he could just be doing what he'd like. What would we find you up to? Uh, fishing on a Saturday afternoon. Uh, I wasn't allowed okay. to fish on Sunday. I'd fish six days a week in the catfish pond. On Sunday, they, weren't, they wouldn't let me fish, so I worked on the bicycles and stuff. Uh, but yeah, we had, we had a farm, uh, so I love to run around the farm. I love to catch catfish. Uh, that was my life. I grew up a country kid. So leave this slide up, Mark, but because I'm going to now take you forward, and I don't know whether it's what we see on the slide, but how about today? So now you don't have to be the leader of a community today. You don't have to, you don't have to be with your kids if you don't want to be, although they maybe would be what you'd be doing. It's a beautiful afternoon, and you got two or three hours. You just get to do stuff for Alexis. What would we find you doing? Well, I love hanging out with my kids. So if I had free time, I'd probably be doing that. But if I wasn't with the kids, I'd be out playing with my fruit trees. That's my other a big passion now. I, uh, I teach propagation classes. Part of the project of Living Energy Farm is uh, sustainable agriculture, which for, uh, for me means growing food on trees. And my wife works a lot with the uh, growing seeds and vegetables, but I love fruit trees. And we grow a lot of uh, naturally uh, resilient trees, trees that grow without chemicals. And I love to get out and work with them. Uh, it makes me feel good to, uh, so I, I grow them from seed, I graft them, I, I do uh, rooted cuttings, I do a lot of propagation, I give them away, I, 
teach people other people how to do it. Uh, so when I have a, a, a spare moment, that's what I do. I'll go out in the orchard. So I'm gonna ask a question away from my lightning round because it relates to this picture and actually several of them we've seen. You mentioned the site was a clear cut. Um, and so these are obviously second growth trees in the picture we're seeing here. Um, and they've grown in seven years. Are we seeing any fruit trees? As we look in this picture or any of those that you're seeing, can you notice anything that's a fruit tree? Yes, what you're seeing actually, it's all mixed together. So it's a little hard to tell with just a photo. Uh, but there's some quinces and cherries actually behind that bicycle. And the people on that bicycle, okay. that's another family that lived with us. They actually left, but now we got another family came in. But in any case, uh, you get an idea of how we move kids around. Uh, we don't, quinces and cherries are actually a bad example of what I was saying about resilient trees. Uh, they're not particularly resilient in our climate, but I love to grow them anyway. Uh, that's that's corn there. That is, uh, that's a <laughs> corn, uh, that, uh, dr tremendously drought resistant, wonderful. Uh, corn. We'll come back to that. All right, now here's the next one. Um, tell us about somebody other than your parents that had a big influence on your life before you were, let's say, 20, okay, um, or in that range, before you really became an adult. Some uh, either, a, and you don't have to give the name, but somebody in your life, just tell us why. What, what was influential about that person? Well, I had a couple of school teachers that I grew up in a very conservative, very rural area, but there were a couple of school teachers that definitely didn't fit that model. I had an advanced, we call it advanced placement, but you know, they try to stick the smart kids in the class. And I had one teacher in particular, and what was so remarkable about her, she kind of let me do what I wanted. Like she'd give me a writing, give us a writing exercise. And I just decided like, I wanted to write about something completely different than what she would told me to do which any other teacher would have given me a failing grade. And she'd, she'd give me, you know, an A plus or whatever on it, as long as it was well-written and well done, uh, gave us a lot of leeway and, and uh, exposed us to a lot of new ideas. So for a country kid down in Georgia, that was pretty remarkable. So let's take us forward now as an adult. And, and again, don't, you probably got lots of them, but what quickly comes to mind now, what's a person that's having a big influence on you either right now or has in the recent past? What kids? <laughs> I know that sounds a silly parental thing no. to say. Kids teach you patience, you know, as activists and, you know, we want to get out and change the world so quickly and can't afford to wait. And they make you wait. They make you pay attention to details. It's just the way it is. So that's, uh, you know, and of course there are a lot of writers and speakers out there that have had all kinds of influence on me. But uh, at this point in my life, the kids have reoriented things for me quite a bit. So that's a good segue. Before I do, though, I'm going to ask another question away from it. What are you guys building right here? Just I, my first thought went to a swing set, but no, I don't think is it something for hops or I, I don't know what it is. Tell us what that's you're building. A pole barn. That's a pole barn. So when they they clear cut ah. the land, industrial clear cutting, they run over as many trees as they haul away, depending on how they different loggers do it differently. But most of our, a lot of our buildings are built. We just picked up trees off the ground that they left behind, and then we lift them by hand. That particular log was really dangerous. I'm glad nobody got hurt. But that was a, a barn that we built. We built several barns. Of course, we have to buy sheet metal okay. or get it used if we can. But all the frame is all poles off the land. And like I say, we bring out volunteer crews to help us lift them up. Very cool. Um, all right, that leads to my segue question. What's a um, a book that you either are reading right now or have read recently, can be fiction, nonfiction, that you would recommend 
because it had an impact on you that our readers, that our watchers, that our viewers would read themselves also? Well, the, the book that I've read in the last few years, I have to say, that's had the biggest impact on me. Of course, I read a lot when I was younger, but in the last few years, it would be uh, Colin Campbell's The China Study. Um, and that's a book about food and nutrition, but all of these issues linked together naturally. Um, and it completely, you know, when you get to be a mature adult, you think you know everything. And that book really was a new one for me. It gave me a lot of new information, a lot of new perspective on food and disease and how the different pieces of that fit together. That's quite a remarkable book. So is the one without the beak here a Ziegler? He went to the China study. That's great, Mark. Good job. Um, yeah, so here's the book, everybody, that he just mentioned. Um, no, we have our ducks. We've got a small handful of ducks. We don't, our farm, we primarily eat a plant-based diet, which if you read the China study, you'll understand why. But we do have a few ducks. And that was my daughter holding one of the ducks. And she has a remarkable... That's what record. I was... Yeah, she has a remarkable... That's what I was... Why, that's what I said. Minute. The one without the beak is probably a Ziegler. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, she's very cute. Um, how old? How old was she in this uh, picture? She's six. Okay. Um, all right. Next one. It relates to the book. What's a tool that you have started to use, let's say in the last six months, that you just, again, would recommend to others? And, and it could be a, a physical tool. We see a tractor in this, in this picture here now. It could be um, an online tool. I, I'm not going to try anything, just a, a tool that quickly, again, comes to mind that you could recommend to others. Uh, uh, either nickel iron batteries or DC voltage regulators. Um, those are both mechanical things, but the nickel iron batteries, we'll talk about those. They're fantastic batteries, although we've been doing, using those for more than six months. But a few months ago, I figured out one of the problems in DC world is that AC world use a transformer. It's two coils of wire like that. But in DC, how do you make one voltage into another, like to charge laptops? Like if I want to, I'm communicating with you with solar electricity, but that solar electricity was 35 volts on the solar panel to get it down to 12 volts to run through a cigarette lighter to get it into the computer, $30 voltage regulator, get them on eBay. I discovered them recently. They're great, fantastic. There you go, everybody. That's a good one, Mark. Make sure to put that one. Tell us about um, something um, that has been influential on you. And let, let's keep it in the, in this, ecological environmental space, um, not necessarily a person or a book, but let's just say it's something you've learned and, and it's been a staple. You, it's kind of continued to be through now through your, your life as you've used it. So some people talk about their spirituality. Some people talk about um, you know they, something that they found related to their diet. Some people talk about something related to their to their exercise regime. What's pick something like that and tell us what it is and what impact it's had on you. That's been really, really stable for you over a number of years. Well, I guess I would choose my spirituality because I was I was raised a fundamentalist Christian in Georgia, which is a very con uh, a lot of conservatism and racism and various twisted aspects of that. But for me, I transpose that. For me, it was obvious. I look out the window. And the living world is a sacred creation. That's just obvious. And I don't understand how we can clear cut and do the things we do. I mean, you see that, that's the land when we bought it. How could you do that to a piece of land? Wow. Um, so uh, the, the sacredness of creation and 
taking that sort of if you're raised Christian, it's a very deep thing. It's a very profound thing. You take it, you know, it's, it's the deepest part of who you are. But for me, I took that God in the sky Christianity and put uh, the sacredness of creation in its place. And that's always been a guiding force for me uh, in everything I do. Um, so that's that's the anchor of all other things. And frankly, it's all it's very difficult because, I mean, you're seeing a clear cut. And, you know, we love to tell the, the brown people in other parts of the world that they shouldn't cut their forests. But we make tons of money cutting our forests um, and we make an awful mess out of it. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's a painful way to live if you're willing to remain open to that, to, you know, how sacred our creation is and how, uh, how little industrial culture is willing to recognize that. Yeah. So that's great. Thank you. Last question. And then we're going to let you go ahead. And, boy, I hope you just tell us about a lot of these pictures because there's just, to me, there's stories behind all of them, I'm sure. Um, let's, um, this is a tough one, okay? And, but, but again, and you can be as specific as you want or as general. Tell us about something that's happened in your life that at the time it happened, it seemed horrible. I mean, it was very, it was a very negative impact on you. And now as you look back on it, it actually, it's worked out for the good. And, and you know, tell us, is, like I said, be as generic as you want, or you can be very specific. And then, and the reason we ask it is, I've done this with hundreds of different speakers. The stories are all different, they're all unique, they're all individual, but it really helps. Because I almost guarantee somebody in our audience is probably facing something very similar, and they're gonna learn from you from it. So tell us about what that, what that might be. So something really negative at the time, but now, as you look back on it, it actually it actually has it's, it's provided you some really good things and results from it. Well, that, that, that's an easy question for me to identify what that aspect of my life is. I mean, the whole process, like I said, I grew up a country boy in uh, Redneck, in Georgia, and the whole process of extricating myself from that culture was was painful beyond description. It was really difficult. Um, and I was never institutionalized or never called clinically mentally ill. And I don't really believe in that term. What I've come to realize is that a lot of bright, creative people, historically, if you look at leaders who've done a lot of things, they're all crazy people. I think we're all crazy, personally. And particularly when I, uh, not long after I left Georgia, I spent a lot of time uh, working with real crazy people or people who've been diagnosed as crazy uh, on the psych wards. Uh, and you know, you can't really claim to have had any particular impact. All you do is offer support. And I learned a lot from that, but, um, yeah, you learn, it's almost as if you can't understand, you know, a lot of people take LSD and say that enlightens them, or at least I've heard some people say that. It's almost like you have to be outside of your own, own head, outside of your own cultural reality to really see it. Um, and uh, spending a lot of time with a lot of, of brilliant but crazy people um, and going through some extremely difficult times um, in uh, extricating myself from a very conservative culture, um, it, uh, teaches you things you could not possibly understand uh, otherwise. I mean, you, to to be broken free of, of so many things you're attached to and have to reconstruct that whole, that whole reconstruct your own reality, uh, it's a profound process. And, and being with other people as they go through that, I've been with a lot of, spent a lot of time with people who've had severe childhood abuse issues or sexual abuse issues and helped them sometimes through the mental health process sometimes outside of the of hospitals or the mental health process. Um, 
and that's a, uh, a difficult and rewarding experience. Um, so, and coming to understand, I, I wrote an article once called uh, "Gifted Crazy and uh, Gifted Mad and Out of Control." You, I, I'm sure it's online if you could find it. I can't point you to the link right now, but understanding that 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 whole intersection between I mean, most people these days are just conformists and they don't want to challenge anything. We've become an extremely conformist culture. So it are, it, the people who are on that edge, who are challenging things are often mentally have their own struggles. I mean, that's just the nature of the beast. That's the way it is. I um, mean, historically, you can look at that and it would be a long discussion to talk about the history, but you can see the people who challenged things, you know, a hundred years ago, a thousand years ago, were also people who were themselves facing their own challenges. And that's part of the reason they, they saw fit to challenge things on a bigger level. Um, so very cool. Well, I that, that doesn't surprise me that, that that's what you, you described. Um, let me um, let me make one comment that I think you're going to enjoy. And Mark, be ready to go to a site here in just a second because I'm going to ask Alexis a question, um, and then I'm going to make my comment, and I want you to go. So here's the question. Um, and this, this, by the way, I'll give you a little hint as I ask it. This, this relates to something you've mentioned several times now, and that is your personal activism interests. And, um, and so I'm, this relates to that. When I say Chicago 7, what does that mean to you, if anything? Uh, does that go back to 68 uh, and the uh, Abby Hoffman and his crew? That's, yeah. You got it. Yeah, yeah, I really okay. have books yeah when I was and my guess is, my guess is you're not really old enough to remember to know that from just so I'm, you know, but I am. So now I'm gonna. So there's now here's a little story, okay? Um, what and and again, many of you probably this is gonna be completely new to you. So Mark, do a search right now and pull up the Google images by just putting in Chicago Seven. And then have that in the background as as I just give this quick little story, and then we're going to turn it over to to Alexis. So I was in that summer, the summer of 1968, and this happened. The, the convention was in August. I was between my junior and senior years in high school, and I was crazy as it relates to environmental activism. And um, one of my hobbies probably one of my biggest ones. Um, just leave it there, not moving. Mark, it's kind of distracting as you move it, so just leave it. Um, these are, by the way, these are all related to the Chicago 7, these images that you're seeing here. Um, I was a surfer and I lived in Southern California and one of the very best places to surf was called Trestles. And it was immediately offshore from two places that you weren't supposed to be. And one of those was one that I was adamantly opposed to. The other one I was just annoyed at because of its circumstance. Well, the one that I was annoyed at was it was President Nixon's outside of Washington White House. And he would go there just like Trump now goes to Miralago and lots of presidents went to Camp David and, and such. Well, because of that, the, the beach, off of that, which was normally public ground, was not, nobody could be on. And so there were MPs, military police that were on the shoreline. Immediately adjacent to that 
was the San Onofre nuclear power plant, of which I was adamantly opposed to. And in July of, two, of 1968, I had protested um, with a group of about 50 people, of which I was probably mid, I was 16 then, and I was one of the younger ones, but I would guess the oldest person there protesting was 25. Um, and we actually handcuffed ourselves to the chain link fence gate that allowed workers to come into the plant. And we stopped them from coming in. That was our nonviolent protest. And we were arrested. And uh, frank frankly, we were, we were just taken off site and they let us go. I mean, we didn't face much. Well, this is the Chicago 7. Um, um, the, the, there are various different members of them. This is actually, this is one, two, three, four, five. Uh, this is a weird picture because this is probably one of the lawyers. Anyway, these guys, Abby Hoffman being one of them, Tom Hayden being another, uh, Rennie Davis being another, Bobby Seals being another, um, Jerry Rubin being another. I think I'm up to five. And I always forget the other two names. Young people who were protesting the Vietnam War, nonviolent protests, they were literally walking and, and blocking some entrances, um, were arrested, were, were jailed, were tried, were convicted of inciting a riot. They were then, um, they had their, their convictions overturned through an appeal process. And um, by the way, the one person that's not in these pictures, he's right, he is right here, but these others is Bobby Seals. This is Bobby Seals. He was the only black man in the group. The rest were all white. Um, and that wasn't a plan by any means. Bobby Seals, by the way, was the founder, one of the founders of the Black Panthers. Um, Tom Hayden, and I believe that one's Tom Hayden. I'm not positive, but um, he was the founder of Students for a Democratic Society, which is what this group then really became. And this was their early stages of it. Anyway, these guys were heroes of mine, um, obviously, at that point. And, and the, this whole process became very visible. They had huge impact. Well, here's the reason I'm telling the story. I got to meet Rennie Davis. So change this now and put in Rennie Davis. Mark here. I got to meet him last Sunday. He came out to my ranch. So I would imagine that if any of these guys came to living, you know, to your place, you'd be kind of excited. I was off the charts. Whoa, Rennie Davis and you're seeing, these are all products. That's weird. No, no, you spelled it rain, Mark. Rennie, R-E-N-N-I-E Davis. R-E-N-N-I-E Davis. I was going to say that doesn't, I don't know why that would come up. There we go. This is Rennie. Here he is as a young man. Uh, this is this is actually him at in 1968. Here is this is him in probably about 1973. This is him probably really very close to now um, because he was with me last Sunday. He looks just about like that. 70 years old and is still an amazing man. And we're going to do some things together. But it was just really cool. I, I want to tell that story just because. Maybe, maybe you can even start telling us a little bit more about your activism, and, but I'm gonna turn it over to you. I'm actually gonna turn my webcam off so I don't distract people, but it's all yours. And I don't know whether Mark's gonna give you the screen yeah. or whether, uh, whether he's gonna keep doing the slides. You guys have probably figured that out. 
Right, I'm going to switch over uh, to Alexis and he'll start sharing his screen. Okay, you're good. Show my screen. Come on, computer. There we go. All right. Uh, so yeah, I can't, I don't know that I did uh, anything quite as extraordinary as uh, Rennie Davis, uh, but I did do quite a bit of organizing on a local scale in Virginia. So can you see my screen now that I do that right? Yes. Yes, yeah, we okay. can. You're good. Um, and what I did was a fair amount of organizing around environmental issues in this area, um, around, uh, you know, some electoral politics, uh, but mostly focused on, I did a bunch of stuff at getting uh, bike facilities, bike lanes and other bike facilities uh, put in this area, as well as opposing the con uh, construction of some commercial development um, and promoting all the while uh, cooperative use of renewable energy systems. Actually, the house I'm in, you saw it, uh, I'm not at Living Energy Farm doing this interview. I'm in, uh, in Charlottesville in a house that I built before I built Living Energy Farm. It's a straw bale solar heated house. And this house is not off grid, um, uh, but it uh, runs it, last I calculated, 91% below average American energy use. So somebody living in this house would use 9% as much residential energy as the average American. Um, and that's because it's, it's a cooperative house. It's a uh, straw bale, so it's a straw bale shell wrapped around an existing house, and then it's solar heated. Um, there's actually, interestingly, no solar, solar photovoltaic on this particular house. Um, and it's unfortunate that the uh, American, the mainstream environmental movement uh, has gotten so focused on grid tie photovoltaics because that doesn't really help much in terms of our overall energy use. But in any case, that's, and what I found was I traveled all over the country promoting uh, what I was writing, I self-published a book called Culture Change before I published the Integrated Activism book. Although if you're gonna go out and buy a book, you definitely want the Integrated Activism book because it's, it incorporates the earlier Culture Change book. But in any case, I found that uh, I was talking to people about, uh, okay, well, here's how we really save energy. Here's how we really do environmental protection. And it's about bringing together cooperative use and renewable energy systems. Um, and that's what I was doing before Living Energy Farm. And I thought, well, okay, I've got, Friends who want to live off grid uh, have perhaps a better than average uh, grasp of renewable energy systems. Let's see if we can build a whole community uh, that runs off grid, uh, that runs without uh, fossil fuel uh, and does and do it with uh, as inexpensively as possible and with durable technologies, not stuff you're going to throw away. Um, and that's what we built. Uh, this document that we put out, which I'm sure they're showing you the link to uh, the PDF, is a fairly brief overview, particularly focused on what we call our DC microgrid. Uh, DC electrical systems. Um, and it's worked out really well. Our biggest electrical system uh, is uh, the one you're looking at. Uh, it's just, it's six panels, PV panels, uh, hooked up in series. And what we do that's so unusual, even though it's uh, ridiculously simple, um, uh, is we run these when the sun's out. Um, so we don't try to store any of the electricity as electricity. You go down that list on the left, and here's all the things we do with it. We pump water, we run the main heating blowers for the house. We run the main heating blowers for the kitchen. Uh, we run seed drying equipment. We run, we cut firewood. I have a whole shop, uh, drill press, compressor, uh, metal cutting, wood cutting equipment. We can run all of that. The only caveat is you run it when the sun's out. Um, and it's a much, much uh, cheaper and much uh, simpler way to use energy. Um, and that combined with um, how we built uh, our, main house, uh, our main house, which like the house I'm sitting in, uh, super insulated with straw bales. Uh, we can use uh, the high voltage DC blowers to pull heat off of solar collectors off the roof, uh, blow it under the floor, 
So we're saving heat as heat rather than trying to save electricity because electricity is a much higher grade of energy. Uh, what you're looking at now on my screen is a bunch of, of high voltage DC motors. These are cheap, uh, oops, sorry about that. Uh, these are cheap uh, brush motors. So a brush motor is a technology that hasn't changed since the 1800s. Um, and the control system on these motors uh, is that the sun comes out and the motor runs, sun goes down, motor quits. It's that simple. Uh, what you're looking at on the uh, sort of right-hand side there is a, a big industrial drill press that runs on a, a high voltage DC motor. There's a bench grinder kind of in the middle. And I stuck just another motor in there. That largest motor to kind of at the bottom of the screen is a one and a half horse motor. So that soaks up all the power coming out of the panels, uh, sort of. Um, it's the biggest motor we can run. The, the interesting thing that we've learned, and this was all an experiment for us before we started this project, uh, the weakness of an AC system uh, is that it has to have more power than you're actually using. So if you have two horsepower worth of motors, you need well more than two horsepower worth of supply. And when people started building off-grid systems, this goes back to the 70s and 80s, uh, they put in big lead-acid battery banks and inverters, and uh, the lead-acid batteries weaken really quickly, um, and you also have to have a lot more capacity than you have demand. The bizarre thing about these, the DC system we've set up is that you can actually exceed uh, your supply. So we have, if you take the 1400 watt uh, solar panels, the ones I just showed you, that's about one and a half horsepower worth of motor, but we can run two horsepower, three horsepower. We can overload the system. We can uh, run the system on cloudy days. And these DC motors are tremendously flexible. They simply speed up, slow down, speed up, slow down. Uh, it's a very flexible system, which makes it immaculately well suited to renewable energy supplies because solar and wind both are very intermittent. You can have more wind or less wind that can get cloudy or sunny. Uh, so the whole, we call it daylight drive or direct drive. And interestingly, some of the industrial equipment that's being manufactured these days has adapted to this. So our main well pump uh, is made, there's uh, Lorentz is one company, the one we use is called Grenfos. Those are both European companies and American companies called Sun Pumps. Those are all uh, uh, companies that make pumps that are designed to run daylight drive meaning you run them when the sun's out. So instead of trying to store electricity uh, to run a pump at night, you have slightly larger water storage tanks and you run those pumps during the day. Uh, we also now have a solar powered refrigerator. Again, it's, it's called a Sundancer, but it's made to run daylight drive. The companies are recognizing, some of the manufacturers are recognizing the value of these daylight drive systems where you're storing energy in forms other than electricity. Um, what we have here is our lighting system. We do want to be able to see at night. So we have one individual photovoltaic panel goes through a charge controller into nickel iron batteries. Uh, that set you see there, you can't quite tell from the picture, but it's about three feet wide. Uh, it's a fairly large, physically large set. But the, uh, the name, the label on the battery would make you think it had as much electric electrical storage as one third of one car battery. Uh, but in fact, these nickel iron batteries radically outperform car batteries. Um, they radically outperform any form of lead acid battery or I think they're much better than the lithium batteries. The, the funny thing in our culture is that we have such a fascination with everything that's new and modern that the idea that something that's 100 years old could be a better technology than something that we're doing now, it, it just it, it grinds the gears in people's head. People can't get that, uh, but it's really true. These old batteries, they were developed and sold widely by uh, Thomas Edison, and I'll show you one of his batteries shortly here. We have a 100-year-old, one of uh, Thomas Edison's 100-year-old batteries, and it works fine. What we have found with these nickel irons is we can keep the lights on 
uh, all uh, all night, every night, and it's fine. We have plenty of electrical storage, um, and we only use electro uh, these nickel irons to keep the lights on. We don't try to run uh, a bunch of other equipment. We have our DC microgrid is a multi multi-linear system, so there's a bunch of supply sources feeding a bunch of different needs. So it's very different than the the linear bulk energy storage or bulk electricity storage uh, system uh, systems that are normally used. Uh, this is just a cute little thing. You can see a cordless drill there. We pull the batteries out of the cordless drill, plug a wire into it, and then we can run it back to a DC power supply. Uh, 18 volts uh, power tool run at 12 or 24 volts. Uh, that picture kind of to the right there is our uh, our living room being lit up uh, with a bunch of DC LEDs, which are tremendously efficient. That's a massive living room we built because we have a lot of public meetings there and stuff. 27 watts to light up the whole living room, six watts to light up a bedroom. Um, Charging systems. Now, each one of these systems is separate. So the high voltage daylight drive system is separate from the nickel iron battery electrical storage system. Now, this is a third system. It's separate. And because each one of these systems is separate, if there's any uh, issue with any one of these systems, it doesn't affect the other systems. And like with the uh, the solar charging system, um, we uh, uh, with the lighting system, if the lights start to go down, you have plenty of time uh, to correct that problem. Um, uh, oops, there we go. Uh, it, it doesn't shut off immediately, which every other electrical system, whether you're talking about a conventional AC grid or conventional uh, off-grid DC systems uh, like they built in the 70s and 80s, now they're building what they call microgrid systems. All of those systems are linear bulk AC systems. So their, their weakness is they all shut down all at once. They're expensive and complicated and they have to have more electricity than you're actually trying to use. Our system is multilinear. Uh, it, we can over, uh, they weaken slowly, they never shut down, uh, and each system is separate. So to charge my computer, which I'm now using to talk to you, we have power coming off of one PV panel. I told you earlier about these nifty little DC-DC converters, voltage regulators, 30 bucks, and you convert that 35 volts to 12.3 volts, which goes through a cigarette lighter plug uh, straight into the computers, and then you can sit and run your computer. Oops, sorry about that. Let me go again. Uh, you can run the computer uh, into the evening. So we're using, effectively using lithium ion batteries in the computers, in the smartphones, in the cell phones, but it's independent of all the other electrical systems. Um, and it's daylight drive again. So these things charge when the sun's out. Uh, we're not trying to charge them at night. Here's our Sundancer fridge, although that picture is clipped right off the web. We just got our fridge actually about a week ago. I should substitute in a real picture. But this, it's called a DDR-165. It's the only refrigerator on the market it's actually made to run daylight drive. So this is a fourth, if you were drawing this out on a chart, this would be a fourth line in the chart. That panel is tied to that fridge and that's what it does. So if there's ever a problem, it doesn't affect any of the other systems. Um, water supply, there's my friend Misha. Um, that pump he's holding is a, uh, a Grunfos pump. It's called a helical rotor pump, uh, which simply means it'll put out a lot of pressure even at very low uh, power. Um, the DC control panel you can see at our uh, at our main solar rack there sends out power in a bunch of different directions. You'll notice how tiny and narrow that pump is that Misha's holding. The reason for that is that pump is made to drop into narrow narrow wells in third world countries or non-industrial countries um, where they can't afford to big drill wide wells. They end up drilling two or three inch pipes going down into the ground, and that little pump will slide down that pipe, and that little pump runs straight off the solar panels. And they're phenomenal. They're not cheap. It's a $2,000 pump, but the performance is phenomenal. So figuring out a way to make cheaper pumps would be a good idea in the long run. 
And again, we have plenty of water. I can take a hot shower 365 days a year, 98% of the time it's solar. The way we do that was with slightly larger water storage tanks. The tanks themselves are not cheap or they're not free, but it's cheaper than what's conventionally done with having massive electrical storage systems and trying to run a DC pump or trying to run a pump at night. Uh, so most rural uh, homes would have a small storage tank and then try to run the pump at night. Uh, we have a larger storage tank and a pump that only runs during the day. It's a different, different logic. Uh, this is cut and dried solar hot water heating. We didn't invent this. Uh, it is a daylight drive system. You see that little tiny 20 watt panel up beside the hot water panels. So that pulls heat off the roof uh, during the day and puts it in storage tanks. So like I say, I can take this uh, hot water, take a shower uh, year round. Um, that's the rest of the system, the hot water storage tank. That little pump is called an LCID. It's a fantastic uh, technology. Um, it's a daylight drive pump, tiny little 20 watt, uh, pulls the heat off the roof. Fantastic uh, little device. Um, this is our entire electrical system. The controls for all the electrical system all put together. So left to right, we have the high voltage 180 volt. That's the main switch that controls the houses. We have the plugs that we run shop tools off of. We have other plugs in other places. In the middle, we have the cigarette lighter plugs where we do all our charging for laptops, smartphones, anything we want to charge, running off the voltage regulator next to that. Um, and then on the right side, we have the charge controller that runs the uh, nickel iron batteries uh, for lighting. Um, this is a chart that lays out, uh, uh, so you can look at this on your own, uh, but lays out uh, our system. So you've got multiple power sources. The main one there is the high voltage uh, daylight drive system that runs a bunch of different kinds of motors. Uh, you can see all the uses coming across. Um, and these are uh, the way energy is normally done. You have a conventional energy system, which takes coal or nuclear natural gas or industrial solar thermal now, uh, to generate mechanical power, to generate uh, high voltage electricity up through step up transformers, down a transmission wire, uh, into your house through step down transformers, uh, all to make your house 70 degrees uh, in the wintertime. Uh, it's extremely inefficient. Power plants are about 65% efficient and then you lose 10% uh, of that power on the wire as it's coming down, but it's a linear system. And unfortunately what happened is because that linear system was established, hundred years ago, all the systems that have tried to replace it have all copied that linear design. So we go down to conventional off-grid energy. I know this is turned 90 degrees, but you can look at it on your own, on your own computer uh, later or whenever. But conventional off-grid, which they started building back in the 70s and 80s, again, a linear system, solar photovoltaic, charge controllers in the lead acid batteries, uh, backup generators, the whole system fails really easily modern AC microgrids, and this is a big movement now, they're building multi-billion dollar microgrids where these solar photovoltaic or other energy sources through charge controllers into lithium batteries, which is slightly different than the old lead acid batteries, but again, AC inverters into multiple home uses. So our energy setup is very different than what's done um, uh, with uh, other ways of using energy. And I won't read through all of this because you can look at all of this in your own time, um, uh, come on, keep scrolling, computer. Um, da, 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 da. So the the uh, this daylight drive business uh, is not wimpy. It's not weak. Uh, the DC motors have actual better horsepower output than a gasoline motor, and comparable or better horsepower output. So on your right there is the main heating blower that heats our house. Our house is about three thousand square foot. That is a large industrial blower. Poles. We have uh, solar heat collectors on the roof. 
pulls down a huge volume of air that we then blow under the floor um, to, uh, to heat the house. Uh, and again, uh, the picture on the left there, that's my daughter Rosa when she was a tiny little thing. Um, the water volume coming off of our main solar pump, uh, this is one of our irrigation pipes. It'll pump uh, 20, 30 uh, or more gallons a minute. And again, we simply irrigate when the sun's out. That firewood saw on the right there, uh, that's my buddy Eddie, who was one of our interns. That's an old buck saw. It's made to run off of a 30, 40 horsepower tractor. We can put a one and a half horsepower DC motor on there and chop through six inch logs faster than a chainsaw. Uh, so these are things that we do uh, when the sun's out. Uh, there's Rosa sitting in front of a seed drying fan. That fan, it's like sitting in front of an airplane. And again, it simply runs when the sun's out. That's our kitchen. You can see, you can see the tile on the floor. Another thing we do is take stuff that other people throw away. So our tile is uh, this uh, mosaic where it's just uh, every bad idea from the 1960s and 70s put together uh, to make a, a mosaic floor. Um, again, I'm not gonna try to read through all of this. Uh, that uh, red grinder that you're seeing there now, we, another piece of our project is that we grow a lot of our own food. Uh, we're now growing a lot of our own grains and within the next couple of years, I think we're gonna be growing all of our own grains. We don't buy any flour and we grind it all ourselves. That's a daylight drive grinder. It simply runs when the sun's out. Uh, there's a daylight drive compressor that's in our shop. We run any tools that you can run off of a compressor in a normal shop. Uh, here's seed drying equipment, again, daylight drive. There's a better shot of my old school industrial drill press. Um, I love these daylight drive equipment, this daylight drive equipment. Uh, there's the bench grinder again. There's water pumps, daylight drive, um, another heating blower. There's all our dried food. Uh, we use this uh, daylight drive systems and the solar heat coming off the roof to dry a lot of our food, uh, which is a main uh, primary food storage uh, process for us. Um, on to the nickel iron batteries. Uh, nickel iron batteries are fantastic technology developed, like I said, by Thomas Edison. This one in the mason jar there is a homemade nickel iron. Uh, that one particular battery is not particularly effective, uh, but nickel iron batteries are nickel, iron, and potassium hydroxide, which is another name for potash or lye. So you can make them yourself. It is a little bit tricky to make a good nickel iron battery, which we're working on. But the idea is that we're gonna go around the world uh, uh, powering, uh, taking the best of the old and the best of the new. So the little, this nickel iron battery that now you're seeing my daughter Rosa, that stainless battery there is uh, a hundred year old battery that's still fully operational. You can see it lighting up the DC LED. So we take this very old technology, which is the nickel iron battery and the very new technology, which is the DC LEDs. And we can provide lighting for people all over the world who couldn't afford lighting otherwise. Because what happens is all of these well-meaning uh, uh, organizations that go into non-industrial countries, they think they're gonna take in solar lighting systems or they come in with a photovoltaic panel, a, a DC charge controller, uh, either a gel cell, lead acid gel cell or a lead acid battery of some sort they walk away three to five years later, that lead acid battery is dead, or if the charge controller fails, the system is dead. And the people in this village in Africa or India or Latin America, wherever, can't afford to replace the gel cell, can't afford to replace the system. Well, these nickel irons are so flexible and so robust, you don't need any electronics. You can take the power straight off the solar panel, straight into the battery. The battery will last 100 years. Of course, the LEDs are very durable too. Uh, this is a lighting system that could light up uh, provide electricity and provide lighting for people all over the world in a very durable fashion. Um, you'd have to ask yourselves why it hasn't been done already. I think it's a lot like malaria drugs, that rich people eat themselves to death. So there's a lot of research put into blood thinners 
and not so much research put into uh, research for malaria drugs because the people who get malaria can't afford to buy them. Uh, it's the same is true with homemade nickel iron batteries. Uh, it's small scale and the way we use it, we're only doing only lighting from the nickel iron batteries. So we're not trying to build big sets of nickel iron batteries. We only need a little bit of electricity. Uh, so hopefully our next project at this point is in uh, Nicaragua. Hopefully we can get that going. Uh, another important piece of this is that we're not trying to do this on a single family household scale. This is the satellite uh, map of Living Energy Farm. So what you're seeing here is a bunch of things are all close together. Those arrows are all pointing to the different spots where we use high voltage electricity. Kind of up in the right hand corner, you see our main high voltage rack. Well, it's only a few hundred feet over to the house and a few hundred feet down to the well. Our shop is a few hundred feet away. It's all within a few hundred feet. So this is why we call it a microgrid. It's all within a community scale. So Americans like their own private homes, their own private cars, but the physics of renewable energy really is not concerned with, you know, our cultural political choices. Uh, the physics of renewable energy are such that it works much better on a community scale. So this is community scaling of renewable energy. Um, this is a basic, uh, and I tell people, they say, oh, well, let me do your electrical system. It's like, no, what you need to do first is figuring out how to develop a community scale cooperative use of renewable energy. And once you've got that figured out, I call that context, then you worry about insulation. This is just a basic drawing of how we pull hot air off of solar collectors off the roof. It's driven with a DC high voltage blower as it goes under the floor through coarse rock where we're holding heat. So we're not trying to store uh, energy as electricity. This is just a basic layout of uh, radiant floor system, air-based radiant floor systems. And this is the actual picture. So you get to see that is a community scale straw bale. So it's super insulated, it's cooperative use. We're not trying to build uh, small single family homes where you can't afford to, to build good renewable energy systems. We're building community scale systems so we can afford to build good, good renewable energy systems. You can see up the middle of those buildings are, are large, but homemade and cheap solar hot air collectors. They don't have to be efficient. The efficiency per square foot doesn't matter. It's the efficiency per dollar spent. And then we've got the, the hot water collectors at each end of the building. Uh, this is a shot of the thick windowsills in the straw bale house, actually in the house I'm sitting in. On the left-hand side is a house actually built out of crumpled up newspaper and clay. Uh, super insulation does not have to be expensive. And then this picture shows you the, the difference. This is on a cold winter night. The house on the left is a normal American home. The house on the right is our house. And you'll see a little bit of heat leakage up at the top. That's actually on our house. That's actually a fault of the insulation contractor that we're about to fix. But the wall itself of our main house at LEF on a cold winter night is actually colder than the ground in front of the house. Whereas the house on the left shows you a normal American home where the house looks like it's on fire. There's massive energy loss. And it's unfortunate now that the environmental groups are trying to encourage electric houses uh, rather than focusing on how we use energy. There's no way we can generate enough solar photovoltaics to do what you need to do to that house on the left. That's massive energy loss. It's multiplied by millions, now hundreds of millions of homes in the United States around the world. It really requires a fundamental rethinking of how we use energy. Um, I think that's the end of that particular presentation. Um, and I notice we're getting near to our uh, hour. Hello? Okay.
Um, well, I'll just keep talking until you guys take it from me. Um, so yeah, the, uh, our focus is on uh, how we use energy um, rather than trying to focus on uh, production of energy. And it ultimately goes back to as long as you're focusing on uh, energy production, uh, you're not talking about the social uh, issues connected to energy production. And I think that's part of the reason it's so much politically easier, uh, so much easier politically to talk about uh, the windmills on the mountaintop and grid-tied photovoltaic, um, that uh, you're not talking about inequality. You're simply talking about energy production uh, as if, uh, uh, as if everybody gets the share in that energy use. Uh, the reality is that three quarters of humanity lives at less than $5 a day. And if we're gonna use renewable energy effectively, we can't simply put uh, photovoltaic panels on American homes, dump some more energy into the American grid um, and have that work. Um, so what we have at LEF then, we started using the phrase holistic sustainability. Uh, it's a question of sort of stepping back and looking at the whole picture of how we live, how we use energy, how we relate to the environment. Uh, most renewable energy systems to be efficient, to be effective, uh, have to be built on a community scale. That's not necessarily true for every technology, but most of them, the efficiency of scale really works best at a village level. So we organize ourselves at a village level. Uh, we focus on how we can organize our lives to use as little energy as possible which involves uh, building well-insulated systems. Uh, Super-insulated houses are not more expensive than conventional houses. They're simply built with different materials. Um, so we build super-insulated houses. Uh, we build things in a way where we need very little energy. And after we've done all of that, we've got this holistic picture of sustainability, then we can supply the energy needs uh, we have uh, fairly easily with renewable energy because those needs have been diminished. I think our total energy use at LEF is maybe 2% of the average American. Uh, that number is kind of a guess really, but it's somewhere in that ballpark. Um, uh, and that's where renewable energy works once you bring it down to that level. The other pieces of our project, uh, we, are, uh, we run an organic farm. We're trying to grow all of our own food. We're trying to develop a system of, of farm grown fuels that again, we wanna to try to take it around the world. So we want villages all over the world to be able to grow a fuel that they can then use in a small tractor. Uh, the two fuels that we're working with are wood gas and turpentine at the moment. Um, uh, so the idea, like I say, is for farmers to grow their own fuel. Uh, the uh, other projects we're working on, we're working on improving cooking systems. For the poorest of the poor, certainly solar cooking and cooking with wood, you're not gonna get anything any simpler than that. One notch up from that is what we're trying to do is high temperature solar storage. Uh, one of the pictures you saw earlier uh, where we, uh, store energy at three, four, five hundred degrees, and then we can use that energy the following day to cook with. Again, it's a village level uh, technology that we're looking at in this picture of sort of how do we how do we fuel a whole village? How do we fuel a whole society? Um, and I think when we put all of these pictures, all of these pieces together, we bring our needs way down. We have energy self-sufficient villages. Ideally, in the long run, we'll have we can have some village specialization, so we can have one village maybe who will make. Uh, DC motors, another village who might make uh, pump well pumps, uh, another village who might produce more food to trade with uh, these other villages, but we can uh, bring it back down to a sustainable level, a uh, human scale, human scale as Kirkpatrick uh, Kirk Sale uh, would say. Uh, so this idea of village level economy has certainly been out there for a while, and it's certainly out there now. Uh, and of course, the piece of that, as I mentioned earlier, that's 
fond, uh, nearest and dearest to my heart is uh, the fruit trees, which is another thing we're working on, growing with fruits and nuts. Uh, and this year we grew quite a bit of our own food uh, on fruit trees. Uh, well, I'm gonna, I will interrupt real quickly. We are getting close to the top of the hour. And mainly it's because I want to entice any of you that are out there, you've been that are in the audience, please put some questions in because I, I have thousands of them. I'm, not, I'm just going to ask one or two, but I'm, I'd really rather get yours. So if you have them, put them here. Alexis, how much time do you have? Can you take a, another 15 minutes or so if we get questions? Yeah, sure. I can keep going. Okay. Um, I'm going to ask mine first. And then uh, as you guys get them, put them in. It takes, I know it takes you a little while to type, so throw them in here. Um, and by the way, if anybody in the audience wants to be unmuted and ask your question live to Alexis, there's a little hand thing that's in your on your your um, your sidebar. You can put that like this, or you can just write it in the in the text, and we'll unmute you, and you could ask the question live. Um, how big is that? Is your daylight solar array in terms of wattage? Um, I think you might have mentioned it very early on, but there was so much information. Um, so what, what's the, because the, it looked like, if you go back, just go up on your page, I think the pictures of it on your, um, yeah. on your buildings, and then you, you showed the array. It's 1,400 watts, 1,400 watts, um, which okay. is much smaller than most of the grid tie systems now. Um, and frankly, uh, you could get by with, um, a smaller system if you wanted to. The trick is that if you're gonna go, if you're gonna do the daylight drive thing, you need to have voltages that match, there it is. So that's six panels in series, 30 volts each panel, six and 30 is 180, um, about 1400 watts, like I say. But the, the industrial voltages are 12, 24, 48, 90, and 180. So in other words, uh, you would need to stick to those voltages if you're gonna run daylight drive motors, at least approximate, you can be, our, our 180 volt rack actually runs at about 230 or 240 volts at peak sun, but still you wouldn't, in other words, if you wanted to do this slightly smaller, you could use three panels and run 90 volt motors instead of 180 volt motors. I'll tell you though, just uh, from somebody who has a lot of experience working with industrial machinery, that even if you have a one horse 90 volt motor working next to a one horse 80, uh, 180 volt motor, a higher voltage motor, the higher voltage is always gonna perform better. And in fact, the 180 volt has become a standardized voltage for a lot of the uh, manufacturers of uh, the submersible pumps because it's a really strong voltage. It's a high enough voltage, you get really good performance. So in theory, you can get equal horsepower, equal power output at lower voltages. You really get better performance at the higher voltages. So we do have several questions from our audience. I have two more. They're pretty quick answers, I think. Um, and then I'm gonna ask the ones from the audience. Um, First, is are most of your um, your power is most of your power equipment your 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 motors your your you know your compressors so on repairable by you guys there on the farm? So uh, if if there's a problem, can you repair it, um, and, or do you have to replace it? Well, we definitely recognize that issue. The, the brush motors are largely repairable. I mean, they can. They're, I'll say they're repairable. The brushes need to be changed out every three or four years. Even if it burned out a bushing, we could lay out a new bushing. So they're quite repairable. The one technology that we're really quite dependent on that's not repairable is that submersible pump. I showed you the one that Misha was holding. Um, that thing is a pretty high-tech pump um, and it uses a brushless motor. It sits 
way down in the ground. So in the long run, I would, we would, it would be a good thing to learn for villages to learn how to make their own good, good quality submersible pumps. But other than that, uh, all of our other machinery, we, we, try to, we, we try to avoid things we can't fix. Uh, that submersible pump, we just simply have a spare sitting on the shelf. Uh, it's, it's too much for us to try to, to find one of those that we could fix. Okay. Last question, I'm going to go to the audience. Aaron, as you might imagine, has asked a bunch of them. So, Aaron, I'm not going to ignore you. I'm going to ask Suze that I see up here first, and then I'm going to get to yours. Um, and this one, you haven't said anything about this, so I'm not trying to at all say that you have any motives towards this at all, but I'm just going to ask it this way. If there was a EMP event or some kind of an event that would um, cause electronic disturbance, could most of your equipment withstand that? Yes, the, the, uh, we, have, uh, we don't have a lot of computers controlling this stuff. The, like the picture I have on my screen now, the wire runs straight from those PV panels straight to the motor. There's not a computer in between. There's no chips anywhere in that system. There's no, there's nothing uh, delicate about it. The PV panels themselves, they are what they are. Uh, you know, they have about a 1% per year degradation rate, but they're not, you know, particularly delicate. We do have, in as much as we have electronic stuff, a computer or whatever, uh, it's, it's uh, you know, one piece of a larger system that has no, uh, you know, because of the multilinearity of our system, there's no one piece of equipment that affects anything that's downstream. Uh, so the computer that gets charged is at the end of a downstream flow. So if the computer fails, okay, well, I can't surf that night, but the lights work, the water works, it, all the other machines work. And all the machines themselves are all heavy industrial stuff. This is not, we're not relying on computers. And that's what's different about our system. All the other systems rely on all of this fancy electronics to make them work. And that's true for the mainstream grid. It's true for modern off-grid systems. It's true for the microgrid systems. They all have a bunch of computers, and I'm not opposed to computers per se, but it does create a weakness in the system. Our system is tremendously robust. I mean, I don't want civilization to collapse, but if it did, we could hold out for decades on our own, doing our own thing. You, you just you just answered it, and I and again, I wasn't alluding to the fact that you might be in that mode of worrying about that, but the reality is, I think the best technologies are those that that expect the worst but they're built for the best and, and they're built to operate really well with with ecological balance with with financial efficiency and yet if something real negative happened you just answered it you could live very appropriately i, I have a somewhat similar situation here on my place and and it you know it, it's well beyond the power production side and relates to our food and our fiber and our water and all those things that, you know, everything we do here, like you're doing, we think is duplicatable by others in other places. But if the worst case kind of came up, uh, you know, if we could defend ourselves, we would be, we'd be in pretty good shape for a long, long time. So, uh, and computers wouldn't, wouldn't be a part of the mix. They wouldn't, they wouldn't have to be. So, Anyway, um, let me get to some of the audience's questions here. And guys, ask some more if you have them. Sue has a couple here, um, and then Aaron's got some. Uh, the first one Sue has, this is an easy one. And I think Mark, um, Mark already answered it. Do you have a link to the web presentation that you've shown? And, and the answer is yes. And 
Mark has got that in the chat. Uh, the second one from Sue. Actually, you know what? That was it from Sue. Guys, ask some questions. Aaron's taking up all the space here. <laughs> all right. Here's the ones from Aaron. What other applications do you see for your solar cooker? Um, and then he said, question blacksmithing. So that, that uh, was just a second. Temperatures for what we're developing would not be high enough for blacksmithing. Blacksmithing, you need to be well up over 1,000 degrees, 1,500 or so. Um, uh, so would not work for blacksmithing. The reality is that what we're doing is simply trying to miniaturize what's done on an industrial scale a lot. Um, if you look at solar, trying to make sunshine into electricity, uh, the photovoltaic panels have gotten a lot of attention because it's something, quote, people can do. It's like people can put it on their house. But what's actually a lot more efficient on an industrial scale are the big solar thermal plants. They have these out in the desert. They have the huge either power towers or you know, acres and acres of power troughs. There's various ways to concentrate the heat, but you concentrate that heat uh, and then use that to generate steam to gener generate electricity. Well, just looking at, you know, dollars and cents, that's actually much cheaper than photovoltaic power on an industrial scale. Um, and one thing they do with that is, of course, they don't have a 24 hour power cycle with solar, but if you imagine huge tanks full of uh, what they call heat transfer fluids, which are often mineral oil based. But in, so you pump your mineral oil or your heat transfer fluid out into the solar farm where it gets pushed up to 500, 800 degrees, whatever. During the day, you pump it into these big storage tanks. And then at night, you pull that out, you generate steam, you make electricity with it. So that's being done a lot on an industrial scale. And in fact, all the big chemical companies now are making there's 70 or 100 different name brand heat transfer fluids on the market. And unfortunately, they're all really expensive. So uh, there's nothing new about what we're trying to do, but the temperature range we're looking at is three, four, 500 degrees, hopefully, because I don't want to go much higher than that. The more the temperature goes up, the more you run into a bunch of issues with just a bunch of issues. But in any case, um, we're simply trying to miniaturize an industrial technology and see if we can do it cheaply. Can we do it for you know, 500 or a thousand bucks? rather than 10,000 bucks. Because if we can, then we can build that in villages all over the world, maybe. Um, so, and it could yeah. be used, you could use that heat transfer process for anything where you want heat, but it's really more elaborate than you would need, like for home heating or water heating. Those systems are already, you know, well-established, you know, no, no point reinventing the, uh, reinventing the wheel there. The, the glycol systems that you use for, for uh, heating water or, you know, passive solar, active solar systems, the hot air systems, those are actually much simpler than the cooking system we're trying to build. So Aaron's got one more here. Or he's got a couple, but I'm gonna ask this one next. It's, have you seen the new lights powered by gravity? It's a good one. Uh, I think he's talking about this sort of clock mechanism uh, systems where you look up, lift up a big weight and that weight then runs a little generator to make lights. Um, it's a technology I'm familiar with um, and, you know, I don't, it's not something we've tried to build. If it works, if people can produce it cheaply, if you can deliver it to people who need it, that's great. Um, I haven't used it enough. I can tell you the, the issue, the two issues there, of course, would be making it cheap and having it be durable. When you, when you get into a bunch of little gears spinning around uh, against each other, and that's a machine you're trying to use every day for years on end, uh, those gears need to be well made. Uh, so if somebody can make good gears, <coughs> uh, make that work more power to them. That, that sort of precision cutting of gears is not something we're gonna do uh, at our farm. 
Um, Mark asks, how cold are your winter nights? You, you gave an example of at least one at five degrees below zero. Give, a, give an average winter night. What's your average winter cold? Well, there is no such thing as average uh, because the temperature oscillates so much. And certainly with the polar vortex, um, uh, we have had, since we started this project, our coldest winter night was about minus 12. Um, I mean, you know, this time of the year, an average winter night is probably 15 or 20 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, and going, we don't go sub-zero a lot, but we certainly get down, you know, low teens or single digits uh, often. And the nice thing about uh, this whole solar setup we've got is it has a fantastic thermal memory. So even when it's only 45 degrees outside and a little bit drizzly and rainy or something, that still feels really uncomfortable, even though it's not bitter cold. But our house has a huge thermal memory. It takes days and days and days to change the temperature in that house. So once we bring the temperature up, the same is true for the house I'm sitting in, fantastic thermal memory. So uh, it takes three or four days to cool the house off so that you, you get that uh, long-term thermal memory working in your favor, uh, even in moderate temperatures. But you know, it's, it's central Virginia, so it's not, it's not bitter cold. And you know, solutions are always local. If you move to places that were colder or cloudier, you would, you know, you would recalculate your investments in terms of where you put the emphasis on insulation or solar collection or, or heat generating or whatever. Two other quick ones, and then I think we're gonna let you go. If you guys would, um, please throw in some ones if you've enjoyed this and got something from it. That's our way of applauding for a speaker. And, and then um, before I ask the two technical questions, um, one's coming from Sue, and then I have one myself, and we'll end with that. You're getting all kinds of ones. People are clapping, which is cool. Um, would you be willing to, uh, to do some more of these for us? Uh, I'll talk with you. Don't put you on the spot now, but I'll talk to you separately. You're an amazing teacher. I mean, you've got amazing information, but there's just so much that you could help us with and this whole community. We have about 17,500 now that are in the community. For everybody that's on here live in the next week, over 10 times that, so we'll watch it as video, as a replay. And this is information that needs to get out there. And, and what's different is your perspective, which is do this for something that is, you know, could fit that budget of $5 a day somewhere in the world, um, which is where the vast majority of people live off of, as you said. And many of them, a billion, probably live off of a dollar a day. I mean, even 20% of that. Um, so a very interesting perspective. So please think about that. Um, and then here's the two other questions. Um, Sue asks, what are the voltage of your LED lights? Uh, the easiest ones to get are 12 volt. Uh, there's a whole market of uh, people who use RVs and sailboats. So there's a lot of 12 volt equipment. Uh, a lot of the 12 volt equipment will actually work at 24 volt. Uh, like the bulb, most of the bulbs I bought actually have a nine to 30 volt range DC. Um, and you can get, uh, yeah, so the, uh, 12 volts easiest, 12 volts not too hard um, for, the, for, the, for the lighting in particular. So I have a, a, an entire shipping container with eight rows on each side that, that are lit with the brand new system that we got this summer that are 12 volt um, LEDs. And the reason we wanted 12 volt is because of the low voltage, even though any kind of light is inefficient and is losing most of its energy to heat for um, um, 120 volt or for uh, fluorescence and others, they're losing 90% of their heat. Frankly, inside of our grow units, 
we can see in the middle of winter when it's zero degrees outside, we have to air condition the units because so much of heat's being lost from our lighting. These stay at room temperature. Um, they'll stay at 70 degrees, um, which is just great for our system. And we've been using them about seven months now. We're real happy with them. If you're interested, I'll tell you more another time about where we got them, what they are, and they're 12 volt. So it's pretty cool. Um, let's see, what, my last question, how many days, because you probably know this, how many days of sunlight um, is your area typically um, on an annual basis? Because you probably uh, know the number. It's, uh, it's they average it to, a, uh, to hours per day. Hours is, is, is right at four hours per day. So if you take cloudy days, sunny days, winter, summer, uh, your average four hours per day, which is shockingly low for most people. That's four hours of full power, basically. Um, uh, but you have to take that in consideration in your design. Uh, you know, what is your average uh, year-round sunshine? Well, I've, I've been in your area uh, more than somebody who lives out in the West would normally be, you know, and I, I've heard measurements on like number of days um, of sunlight. And I think it is based on at least having a four-hour day of sunshine during that day. Here in Denver, and this crate, this is, people are always shocked by this. We have a higher number than Phoenix, Arizona has. Um, we're 310 days um, where we have, um, and I can't remember the metric, but it, it's actually more than four hours of daily sunlight. And which means we're an amazing place to do anything that's solar or power related because of just having all that sunlight. We're also higher elevation. So we have less, less of the sunlight that's, that's absorbed. Um, so it, even better for being in that. But, I was curious because my guess is if I look that same metric up, you'd be about 260 probably. You might be 50 days or more or less than we are here. And I'm saying that, guys, because he's they're doing amazing things in not the most optimal sunlight environment, at least not in this continent. Um, so there's there's probably lots of places that have num higher numbers of solar uh, days than, than than what Alexis has there. Yeah, you're correct. You have a lot more sunshine than we do. Um, and uh, yeah, but you can design around that. You know, the, the whole thing about building in thermal memory and whatnot, you can, you can average that sun out. The other interesting thing is that even with heavy clouds, these photovoltaic panels will still put about, uh, out about 10% uh, of what they would put out in full sun. And 10% is not that much, but it's actually enough to get us by. Um, that little 10% will, will, uh, will squeak us through the cloudy periods. And we do adjust their lifestyle somewhat, but yeah, it, uh, yeah, you don't, uh, yeah, you guys have great sun. We have less of it, a lot less. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna end with one last question for for uh, Alexis, and then let him sort of take us out by giving his whatever last words of, of wisdom he wants to impart, because this is related to that. The question it comes from Mark. It's a great question. And then afterwards, everybody. Alexis, you can certainly stay and watch and you can turn your webcam off, whatever. Mark's gonna show about a half an hour of all of our videos earlier in the week. By the way, I would highly recommend to all of you and tell your friends to watch the replay from this. It's free for all of you. So it'll be up maybe, today's the start of the weekend. It'll probably be up Monday afternoon, maybe Tuesday-ish um, that Mark will put it up, but you've got access to it. So please watch it. So here's Mark's question. And then answer this and maybe use it as a segue, Alexis, to take us out. Where should a person start if they wanted to follow your example? Um, 
uh, well, uh, the different, you can look at the technical document we put up and you can start to bite off pieces of that. Um, like if you wanted to put up a solar charging station, for instance, you could put up, uh, you know, a single PV panel, you could put up uh, a, a voltage regulator and just start charging your, your cell phones or your laptop or whatever. Um, if you want to learn about electricity, um, I have to say, for me, I think that uh, a deeper level of that is is the more the political side of it. Um, and in that regard, just find some local environmental groups, find other people. Um, I mean, we are such an individualistic culture that we want to always solve these things by ourselves. And this really doesn't work by yourself. Um, we are, I mean, we're kind of playing both sides of the fence, I think, at Living Energy Farm. We are going to start more, I think, trying to help people put some uh, standalone solar technologies in their houses just so they can learn how that works. Uh, but I can tell you over the long run, those standalone technologies, uh, you know, it, it's biting off a little piece of it and that's fine, but it really doesn't get you over the hump. I mean, even with, with just solar hot water, I've seen a lot of these systems get installed and years down the road, people neglect them and they fall apart and, and they don't hold up over the long term. Um, if you set it up so that you decide to structure your life so that you are reliant on a renewable energy technology, you will take care of that technology. If you get rid of your car, if you live in a city and you can live without a car, you get rid of your car, you will take care of your bike. If you go out and put $30,000 into a car and then you put 50 bucks into a cheap bike, you ain't gonna take care of that bike. That's just the way it works. So it's the same with renewable energy. Part of what we did with Living Energy Farm was we made a decision to not have propane, to not have uh, great electricity, to not have these backup systems. So we're forcing ourselves to, to rely on these systems. So we're gonna take care of them. If anything goes wrong with it, we're gonna fix it. We're gonna improve it. We wanna be comfortable. So um, yeah, you can bite off little pieces of the technology. Um, and I think a, a more fundamental piece is to, to get involved with other people and start talking about how we can organize ourselves as sustainable villages. Because in the long run, we're gonna do that whether we like it or not. Uh, industrial society is gonna go through, you can call it a collapse, a transformation, uh, change, whatever word you want to apply, it's going to change in a big way. And the big centralized systems we have are not going to be there 50 or 100 years from now. So we either do it by accident or we do it on purpose. I think we should do it on purpose. I think we should do it soon. Anything I can do to help you do it, let me know. Livingenergyfarm.org is our website. Uh, you can get in touch with us through there. Awesome. Mark, um, one thing, Alex, Alexis, if you don't mind, um, Mark's going to start this replay we can actually talk, you and I, and actually Mark, and uh, separately. If you don't mind staying on for just three or four more minutes after Mark gets this started, I just want to thank you, and, and we'll be able to do it. Uh, we'll actually get muted, and then we can unmute ourselves and talk to each other, I think. If that doesn't work, I'll just call you back at a little bit later time. But anyway, thank you so much. This has just been awesome. Again, the audiences, thank you. Sue just put in. She said a great thank you from Sue from New Zealand, Sue and Michael. Um, they just started their new permaculture property, and she gives you a big thanks. Hey, everybody. I bet you enjoyed that immensely. That was one of our most amazing presentations here at the EAT community. Please look forward to our next podcast in the very near future, and we look forward to seeing you again on the EAT community podcast.